Welcome to the Aussie Nerds Podcast. I'm Daniel, and this week we're going to talk about Lawrence of Arabia, because it is Phil's favorite movie. How are you doing, Phil? I'm good. Yourself? I'm doing good. We went looking for cars today. Nice. The, um, this movie is very pretty. It's like the cinematography is what can be hung on a wall as a painting, and they just did that. Yeah. That's that's Freddie Young, right? That's that's why he won an Oscar for it. Does that it's, it's like in my personal opinion, it's the most beautiful film ever done. I mean, I could maybe say a, a film like uh, Baraka would actually be a prettier film, but as as a piece of of, of cinema, it's it's unrivaled, really, and it's in its cinematography and its editing. It's one of those uh, films that you just you just see the techni- the technical um, difficulty on screen. Uh, so um, yeah, very much so. I, I don't know why films don't just look like this all the time. It must be so hard. The 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 problem especially with with modern cinema and this is the, the the main crux of the issue is that a lot of the things that david lean did in this film a lot of the shots that he tried to obtain in this film the reason they don't do them now is because they are hard you know there's these stupid stories of david lean you know waiting until dawn just to, to film the stunt and you go okay you know it's just a story but it's obviously true because he did it but now, now, nowadays, it's easier for them to go, well, you know, that's going to be a logistical nightmare or, you know, we're not going to go out and polish the sand in the desert every time we do a retake. You can't just, you know, clear out the sand and make it flat again. We could they also just do it use on CG. Yeah, we could do it with CG, which looks fine. but doesn't And that's the main really- issue. But it, it doesn't look fine because most CG that we've done in the past, you know, like we're getting better. That's great. But most of the CG that we've done in the past 20, 30 years, it really shows. And the beautiful thing about Lawrence of Arabia is that it's entirely practical. He didn't go to matte paintings. He didn't go to, to you know, cardboard soldiers, as they say. Everything you see on the screen is a real thing. And that's why this film that's over 60 years old still stands up what's your favorite shot in the movie favorite shot yeah uh, you know you could go to omar sharif riding out of the uh the the mirage which is just beautiful especially considering at the time when he he envisioned the shot you know he went to freddie young and they didn't know if they could actually do it they didn't even know if a, a mirage would show up on on film like that it's a beautiful shot but honestly, it's just every, every shot in that film is like a pain. Just hang it up in a gallery and let me marvel at it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's phenomenally well shot. And Freddie Young very much deserved the Oscar for that. And, it's- you know, they do these, these top ten lists of cinematography. And they go, oh, you know, this movie or that movie. He's always in the, in the mention. He's always up there. And I don't know. I just, I haven't seen a film that's shot as beautifully and as perfectly as that film. There's a lot of movies that are stylized and have a specific look to them. But in terms of technical marvels of capturing the desert or just an environment um, so beautifully, it's just, uh, it's a marvel. Um, Very much so. And the other thing you've got to remember too is that this was a time when we were using the standard aspect ratio. So the, the letterboxing of films wasn't really a prevalent thing at this time. And this film was done in CinemaScope, which if you don't know CinemaScope, it's a, a 1 to 2.66 aspect ratio. So this thing was very wide, 
very widescreen, even for today's standards, it's extremely widescreen. But between the cinematographer and David Lean, they filled those shots. They're not empty shots with a, you know, one focus in the middle of the screen. They fill the shots. So you ask what my favorite shot in the film is, and it's literally at the start of the film when he lights the match and he goes to blow it out. Because when you see that on a, on a pan and scan or on a letterbox, you see Lawrence. But when you see it in CinemaScope on a big screen and you see Lawrence and you see his arm and you see the match and it's just everything, the entire shot is filled from one end to the other and it, it reads like a story across the screen. It's absolutely astonishing. It's gorgeous. This movie is three hours long and... When it's, it... actu it's actually three hours and 22 minutes long By depending on your cut. It's three hours and <laughs> minutes long. So I literally didn't have time to watch it in one day. I watched the first half and luckily there was a, a clear break where they had an intermission. And so I'm just yes, like, they did. great, I'll finish it up tomorrow probably. And then, uh, and then I went to bed and then immediately, as soon as I got up, I'm like, I've got to finish this movie. I couldn't help but think about uh, what was going to happen next. And w what an experience that was. And it was like from, from like 7 to 11 or something. And then from like 8 a.m. to the rest. I couldn't help but just go back to it immediately. It's so engaging. And I think part of that is the way that the story is structured. And I think that's the most interesting thing because I've heard people complain about the, the introduction to the film. So after the overture at the start of the film, you get basically a montage of Lawrence dying. He rides his motorcycle off the road, and then you have his funeral, and then it flashes back to, to the Middle East. And I've heard a lot of complaints about that, where it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, why would you kill your character right at the start of the film? And I think the reason they did that, and it's very important, is that you're not this is not the story of whether he lives or dies. This is his story. So when you're watching the film, you're not waiting for, you know, that moment when he might get killed or that moment when he's in peril or whatnot. You're just following the story and you're seeing the, the progression of the man, the, the psychological progression of the man as, as like, as he slowly loses himself to the desert, but also as the desert kind of takes him over, how he starts losing him, himself and becoming someone else. And it's really, it gets under your skin, especially, I mean, he, he did a really great job, uh, Peter O'Toole playing that character. And even though he was like almost a foot taller than the real Lawrence, you see them side by side, those guys look just spot on. I love that this is based on a true story. I didn't know that. I'm so, I, oh, this is, oh, it's such a great movie. Um, I love, it's got great pacing. Um, even though I had to turn it off halfway through because it was getting late, it didn't feel long, which is what I'm always afraid of with like three and a bit hour movies. But at no yeah, point does and, it and that's, well, one of the funny things I find is, is especially now in, in, in our current environment, we have a lot of people talking about the, the Avengers Endgame. Oh my God, it's three hours. Uh, how am I going to last three hours and sitting through this, this film for three hours? And I've seen Lawrence of Arabia probably, I would say seven or eight times on a big screen. And I don't ever remember wanting to get up and use the bathroom. And I mean, there's even an intermission, but the scoring is great. So I'll just sit there and listen to the music in between the, the part one and part two. Avengers Endgame it, it, um, being three hours should have the intermission. It's not going to have an intermission, I don't That's think, no. But again, my point being is, is that if you're engaged mm -hmm. in the film, if you're interested, if you feel that the, the consequences of the film are important enough, time becomes irrelevant. If you're watching a, a, a pot boil, it takes forever, right? You're having fun time will fly so i don't know I, I i never really and i mean it wasn't until 
years and years after my first viewing that I realized exactly how long this film was. I didn't know it was over three hours long. It felt just like any other film, you know? Oh, it's about two hours, two and a half hours. You know, it's it a longer format for the epic uh, 50s, 60s film, but I didn't think three and a half hours long. It, I, it just flows well. There are 90 minute movies that are longer than this. It's not about how long it is, yeah. how long it is. <laughs> I, oh God. Yeah. I, it's true. It's, it's, there's some movies you, you, you're biting your arm off to get out of there. Uh, I um, saw Happy Time Murder <laughs> in the cinema because I had a free ticket. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry, is, my friend. No. That movie's nine hours long. Halfway through, I'm just like, I just, <clears throat> just want to leave. Uh, th- this was like an hour. It felt like an hour. It's so good. Uh, and I, I can't believe that the pacing was was this um this quick this uh well edited uh no wonder it won um the, the oscars all the oscars all of them basically yeah i think it won seven in the in the end run but it, it it's funny because when you talk about the oscars for this film the, the strangest thing is is that it won basically all the big oscars except actors you know, Peter O'Toole got nominated and Omar Sharif got nominated, but they didn't win. Do you know who but did? Who won? Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, off the top of my head, I couldn't answer it. But for me, that's that's relatively irrelevant. That's true. Because the thing that draws you to this movie, the characterizations in this movie are phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that draws me to this movie is 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 the triumvirate of cinematography, editing, and direct. Yeah, and big you know one. we've talked we've talked about the cinematography. We've talked about Freddie Young. That's a big a big deal for this film. And you know everyone always talks about that about how well this film was shot. But the editing in this film is is spot on. And you know when you when you look at there's a very uh, a great edit in this film where the American reporter goes to the the old Arab man hands him his business card. He's looking for Prince Faisal. And you see him hand the business card to the, the old man. And it shows the business card in the old man's hand. And then it cuts to Faisal holding the business card. So what they do is they edit out the time. They edit out the, you know, an unnecessary trip from, uh, uh, I believe he was in Aqaba at the time. A big, long trip, a, an unnecessary plot just to get him from point A to point B. And they do it in in two cuts. And it's so seamless and beautiful. And people talk about the cinematography. It's always, oh, the paintings. It looks like a painting. But it's shot so well. And it's edited even better, really. And there's no unnecessary edits. It's not like like, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, where you're getting epileptic seizures because there's so many cuts. That got nominated for editing. Just on a sidebar. It got nominated for editing. What's wrong with people? Bohemian Rhapsody got nominated for it won. It won the Oscar for for editing. Editing. It won, yeah. Now, now, in in Bohemian Rhapsody's defense, in Bohemian Rhapsody's defense, it did have the most editing of any film last year. (laughs) But um, as I say, when it's when it's cut like a strobe light, and you're having epileptic seizures because they can't focus on a character for more than two-tenths of a second. That's not the thing, right? David Lean, in the way he shot his films, he had a, um, a very much a, a philosophy of if it looks like a bunch of shots cut together, it, it takes the person out of the film. They know that they're watching a film. So what he wanted was he wanted as much as possible for you to think that it was all done at once. Like it was one ongoing shot. And when you're doing landscape shots, you know, when you're cutting from one desert landscape to the next desert landscape, you can do fades or you can do wipes and, you know, that works. But when you're doing close-up shots to mediums to long shots, you can do it in such a way that it doesn't seem like it's multiple shots being edited together. It's the flow of the edit that makes it work. It keeps you in that that mindset where you're you're following the story and not watching a film and that's what works very well about Lawrence sound or by motion 
So if the thing that ends a shot is something in motion and the next shot starts with something in motion, the motion kind of throws you off the cut. So your brain doesn't notice the cut as much as if it's just a solid cut from one person's face to the next. I like editing that's um, unnoticeable. I notice it more. Yeah. Um, this, this, uh, the editing in uh, Birdman, for example, to make it all look like one take. Exactly. Uh, I, that deserves an editing Oscar. <laughs> because I, it, looks, it, it looks fluid. It looks fluid like it's a story that's being told. They're not trying to make a bunch of, of awesome camera shots turn into one film. Yeah, the, um, I, I love long takes. And I especially like not long takes that feel like one long take. Because it, it requires like planning and things to be thought out and secured. Can you imagine just needing to go back for reshoots and having to make it fit into that flowing um, shot that you had planned? Yeah. But I mean, those, those big long shots, they're, they're beautiful. You know, you watch, everyone talks about the, the Goodfellas long shot. It's a beautiful shot, but it's a steady cam shot. So you basically have a guy just following them around with a steady cam and all the actors are on cue and it's really well done. But does it, does it come up to a movie like Touch of Evil where you're using cranes and you have cars and you have a parade going through? That, that one was a, a bit more technically uh, difficult, and it does run. And plus, the thing with Touch of Evil that Goodfellas didn't have was Goodfellas, when they're going through the, the restaurant, there's no sense of urgency. Whereas in Touch of Evil, you have a bomb in the back of that car. So there's a sense of urgency to that whole shot. And the other awesome thing about Touch of Evil that everyone forgets, the bomb is actually set to the runtime of the film. So when oh, the bomb goes off, it actually goes off in the exact amount of time that it was set for. That's and that's, that's the clever. I like that. That's the opening shot of Touch Evil too. So yeah, it's it's that that kind of shooting. It's really hard, but it can really get you into a film right away. And that's why you know Touch Evil, I think, has the reputation it has is because of that opening shot. After that opening shot, you're you're committed. You're in there, right? Um. Alfred, I think it was Alfred Hitchcock, uh, he said you have two options. One, the bomb explodes and it's a shot. Or you see the bomb underneath the table and then you see that it's on a timer, it's going to explode and then you just have a conversation. Just a normal conversation, doesn't matter what it's about. And because you know that there's a bomb underneath the table, it's suddenly full of tension. It's like in... Um, yeah. Rope. Rope is, is the prime example when you talk Hitchcock because, again, it's like Birdman where they edit it to, to seem like one shot. But it's the dinner party where the main focus of the dinner party is the table with the dead body party does. And the entire thing is just run like a regular, oh, we're having a good party. But it's so tense because you know that that's there and someone's gonna find it at any minute it's great great film but it gets overlooked because everyone focuses on psycho or birds or which if you're going to be overshadowed be i'm not, I'm not gonna own. say uh, rear window because it's phenomenal it is i i love hitchcock i saw psycho in cinemas they did a re-release of it and i i saw it in cinemas yeah. And it was so good up until the last five fucking minutes. You know what I'm talking really? about? Really? You didn't like the end of Psycho? I like the very end of Psycho, right? Where he's, where he's looking in the camera and there's the voiceover and it's like, hey, I wouldn't, he wouldn't, I wouldn't even hurt a fly. That's fucking great. Before that, right before that, there's a five minute long or nine hour long boring exposition scene where the doctor is like here's the plot of the film and i'm like shut up don't need you go away yeah yeah i get you there yeah but like you cut that out you go straight from him being revealed um as being the killer to him being in the cell wrapped in a blanket his mother's voice and you have all that uh, then it would be a perfect movie <sighs> um yeah i i kind of agree i i think that 
if if you look at the time at which Psycho came out, there wasn't so much of a public knowledge of of what they call now murder porn. So people didn't know a lot. Like your your general audience didn't know a lot about mental illness. They didn't know a lot about these these psychopaths and whatnot. Uh, but I understand what you're getting at. It is it is it does chew on the exposition a little, but I, it is it's a phenomenally well shot film. Oh yeah, the rest of that movie is spot on. I love the fact that they hired this really famous actress, and. You're like, okay, so she, uh, I know, I have seen this. She's going to be killed in the shower, uh, etc. But that I thought that that was going to be towards the end. I didn't realize that she was going to get murdered almost immediately, especially after they set up this entire plot with her. And then 20 minutes in, she, no, she's fucking dead. I really like that. That's very funny. Well, that's also one of the reasons why Hitchcock put the, uh, the proviso that audiences wouldn't be admitted after the first 20 minutes and that was a really a first for for them because at that time period movies ran in a loop so people would just wander in and out and oh, wow. he said no 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 we're gonna have we're gonna have showings at specific times and after 20 minutes you won't be admitted in and the reason they did that was because they didn't want people showing up to see janet lee and seeing a movie without janet lee in it That's because good. after 20 minutes she's not in it no more right so you know, he didn't want people coming into the cinema, sitting down and going, where the hell's Janet Lee? Have you seen the trailer to Slacker? But it really started a structure, a structure of ticket buying, really, as opposed to, you know, a general admittance where you'd go and you'd sit and you'd watch a movie from halfway through to halfway through. Or maybe you'd sit and watch it twice, which kind of sucks because, you know, there's certain movies I, after I'm done watching, I would love to just sit there and watch again, right? Uh, that but as you say, there's other movies where I just want to run for the hills halfway through. Uh, there's, uh, I heard that um, when there's an intermission, when there used to be intermissions in cinema, in, on movies, you could go, you could leave and get uh, your ticket half price. I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard that once. Uh, you might be right. I don't know. I don't know. I've never heard that. I, I be heard something to look up, though. It'd be funny if it was true. Funny if it's not. Um, for Lawrence of Arabia, the we have the cinematography, we have the editing and directing and the acting. Uh, what do you think of the story itself? The the story itself. So the, um, you're going to get into a, a lot of of murky territory when it comes to the story. I I find the story extremely engaging. What they they did was they crafted a story you know, a standard hero's tale of somebody coming from nothing and going to, to become a, the, the hero of the day or whatnot. But they also meshed in this this whole uh, mentality and, and psychology of the character as he slowly becomes somewhat egotistical and self-absorbed and also a little bit mad. Um, you get a lot of, of, of people contradicting the history on the, the Lawrence of Arabia. There are a lot of historical inaccuracies. Like the the character of Lawrence, they they often portray him as as only white man in Arabia, you know, leading the armies. There was in fact several British officers doing similar things. He wasn't the only one. And the the thing about Lawrence, though, that you have to view is you have to view it in the larger sense that what this this man did and let's say one man let's let's ignore the other 11 or so people who did the same thing to a lesser extent he did it to a much greater extent but let's just focus on the one man the british tried to open a second uh front in the first world war in gallipoli right to try and take pressure off the the front especially bring the ottomans into the war and they failed miserably at gallipoli it was a bloodbath it didn't work this one man rallied a bunch of quote-unquote savages and inevitably brought down the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it's historically accurate in the sense that after the, the Arab uprising during the First World War, the Ottoman Empire was driven back into Turkey. They, they controlled most of the Middle East. They were driven back into Turkey. 
And within three years, the Ottoman Empire was no more. There was a war of independence and that was it. The Ottoman Empire was done. There was no more sultans. It was done. So there is a lot of historical significance for this character, but generally not for American audiences. This is a very British story. Oh, yeah, it's super British. It's... Um... Uh, it was made uh, based on um, British ideals, but considering that it's, that it's uh, British, I find it interesting that they didn't go for making him sort of the chosen one or the only one that could um, that was involved in saving everyone, because that's a very British thing. It was very much he's the leader, but it was a team, and they, he gathered. Um, people together and had offices and stuff is feels more like a war movie than I expected. It is a war movie. You have to remember this is all taking place during the First World War. This is nineteen uh, nineteen seventeen. This is the height of the the First World War. But I think to an extent they do kind of give him a bit of a messiah complex in that he's the the one white man leading the savages. They Quite don't unquote. really. Like Alan, Ge- General Allenby, oh, I would never say anything negative about the Messiah, but uh, General Allenby was a very influential character in, in the Arab up- uprising, and he kind of gets sidelined. He becomes the officious general who's always like, well, what's all this then? Um, Cheerio, carry on. Well, no, not even carry on. It was, what are you doing, lords? I told you to do this. And, and he, he was much more involved, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have studied Lawrence, you know, not just in the sense of the film, but in, in the seven pillars of wisdom many times, which is what this film is literally based on, which seems to be the main crux of the the problem with the story is that people say, well, the story's not very accurate, but it's not based on a historical document. It's based on a book written by T.E. Lawrence, in which T.E. Lawrence emphasized his role in things, saying, oh, I did this instead of we. And what David Lean did with that is he went, well, let's go a step further, because we're going to do a egotistical biography of this biography so he kind of he, he went the extra level and said we're going to pump ourselves up about this guy who pumped himself up so you you get more of a one man versus the world than historically accurate but at the same time lawrence didn't really give everybody as much credit as he gave himself and there's some contradiction amongst people who say you know oh, he wasn't an egotist or that he he, he hid from the cameras and and tried to stay out of the shadow. He was always pushed into the limelight. He didn't want to be, but he, he kind of was. He, he, he liked to be the focus of attention. It's, I find it that being said, you, you get a, a, a theme through this movie of a smart-ass British officer who learns that he's not as smart as he thinks he is, but because he keeps challenging his expectations, uh, because he challenges death, let's say, basically, he challenges death on many occasions and gets proven to be superior to the challenge, he pushes himself into a corner where he cannot overcome that. So he ends up getting himself in a lot of trouble, and then they eventually just take him out of the, the picture. And that's one of the beautifulest things about this film is that last shot where it's not the hero's parade, right? He's not coming back the victorious hero. He's being driven away in a jeep. And that's his last view of, of the Middle East is just being basically swept off the, off the scene. I love that. I find it interesting that the... Um that the biography is, uh, is really glorifies his own accomplishments. And then the movie is like, yeah, you did that, but uh, you did that for your ego and you uh, worked with others. And here's all the people that actually helped you accomplish all that. Isn't well, it- yeah, it's so when, when you do a film of 
reality, you distort reality to make it more entertaining. When you do a film of a distortion, it becomes even more distorted, right? But at, that being said, the film still conveys what needs to be done. It's the the attack on Aqaba when they cross the uh, the desert and attack Aqaba from from behind. That was uh, that was a. They never show the British army or British navy who were shelling the city from the sea, but they were the British navy was shelling the city from the sea, and that's why the Ottomans had their backs turned to the desert. Now they weren't expecting the the cavalry to come charging out of the desert, but at the same time, it was part of the diversion. But they never show the the navy, right? No, they, does that make the does that make the scene any less important? It does pump up the, the 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 character of Lawrence, making him seem more brave and more bold. But does it really affect the narrative? It would actually, and that's what the thing with the historical inaccuracies of this film kind of flow with, in in my opinion at least, is do the changes affect the narrative? The narrative that they're trying to, to tell. It's it was still a risky plan, and um. If, they sh if part of the plan was that the British Navy was going to distract them, it, would, it wouldn't take, I don't think it would have taken away from Lawrence's uh, bravery or accomplishment in that scene. But at the same time, it's, it's not, it's a lie of omission of omission. It's not like they didn't say that that wasn't happening. No, understood. Um, which is, uh, it's a difficult balancing act for a movie. They kind of did. Because when he goes back to when he goes back to Cairo, he uh -huh. tells Allenby we've taken Aqaba, and Allenby goes, "Who told you to take Aqaba?" <laughs> well, well, you did, Allenby, when we came up with this plan six months ago, and you sent the navy up there, and we went through the desert. Regardless, I'm just saying, is it historically accurate? No. Does it serve the narrative? Is this a story, a historical story of the war, or is this a story of the man? Well, let's look at the title of the film. Is the title of the film The Arab Uprising of 1917? No. The title of the film is Lawrence of Arabia. We're so, talking about the man. So for a historical audience, if you're reading the book, it makes sense to talk about that plan because you're engaged in that book and you're engaged in that historical event. But when you're doing a biopic of this man, mention that and just make it look so we know he's a hero. He's a hero. But when we put it on film, maybe if we get rid of this, it'll make it, it'll convey it to the audience better if we know, okay, yeah, he's a hero. Rather than having to question that going, well, he was just a cog in the, in the wheel, right? He was and, just part of the plan. Um, movies, movies aren't reality. So as long as you capture... Well, they're hyper-reality. They're hyper-reality. So if you capture the, the spirit of his character and you talk about the things that he did, even if you enhance them a bit, uh, it's a difficult balancing act, but I think that that's perfectly fine. And it worked really well uh, as a movie, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to throw the history straight out the window, does it, is it a, an interesting narrative? Yeah. Um, and and that seems to be the major crux with people. They don't like this movie because of these minor historical inaccuracies. Well, Prince Faisal was only 23. He wasn't an old man. Yeah, okay. Who cares? Oh, uh, would you rather see age. some young kid who doesn't know how to act, Peter O'Toole? Or would you rather see legendary actor Obi-Wan Kenobi, Alec Guinness, acting against Peter O'Toole? I'm sorry, you know. David Lean went with his with his his big guns on this. He needed I, he needed the the gravitas guy in that role. I I don't give a shit about ages. I never have. You can change the ages of historical figures all you want, um, as long as they capture the spirit of the um, of the person. It's an adaption. It's an adaption of history. Um, like any other adaption, there's going to be some changes as long as you capture the spirit of it and it's not like they changed his character completely they just in, they just focused on him more uh i'll agree to disagree because i'm gonna always go back to the the braveheart example oh yeah good point where the the princess that 
William Wallace is supposed to have seduced and impregnated was eight years old at the time of his death. Yeah. Which makes that super creepy. So yeah, that that historical inaccuracy there makes me my skin crawl a little. Okay, good point. I think that in general we should play by ear. Again, what it comes down to does does it serve the narrative? Does it serve the story you're trying to tell? So in Lawrence of Arabia, um, by not having by omitting uh, battles that happen along the way, does does it serve a narrative to just do a, a nonstop list of achievements, or to focus on several achievements and how they emotionally and psychologically affect the main character? And if we're going to portray these on a big screen, are we going to alter them slightly so that it makes that narrative work? You know, uh, the, the, the bloodlust scene that people focus on where he's shooting the, the Turks. Mm-hmm. People go, oh, but he wasn't, he wasn't a psychopath. He didn't, he didn't go crazy for blood. But yet everyone who was there at the time, historically accurate, say, he said no prisoners. He screamed no prisoners and rode towards the Turks. When you say no prisoners, that means there's no prisoners, right? Right. Um, I, I think, the man didn't like blood, so... I think it's interesting to argue about when to change history to fit the narrative that you want to stay. And are people saying, he wasn't that bad, or he wasn't that good, or this or that or the other thing. People argue about history, and if you're doing that anyway, the movie is just doing that as well. Right. And the other, the other thing I find funny about the, the arguments on, on this point in particular, uh, it also comes down to similar things, similar arguments with films is it's always after the fact. So you're not going to be watching a, a, a film like gladiator and going, Commodus wasn't like that. Okay. Maybe he wasn't, but, you're not going to scream that in the middle of the film if you're engaged with the film. If you're engaged with the character of Maximus, you're going to go, wow, that was a good movie. And then after the fact, you go, yeah, but it wasn't very historically accurate because Commodus wasn't that bad a guy and he wasn't murdered by a gladiator. He was murdered by his own bodyguard. But that's after the fact stuff because within the narrative of that film, it works. Not only is that after the fact stuff, but if your movie is uh, really interesting and engaging and then it inspires people to research the real history, then that's, that serves yeah. a purpose in itself. And another thing, with only one example I can ever think of in my life, if you're actually a, a history major, if history is your thing, don't go see history movies then. <laughs> because if you go and watch Bridge on a River fly or a bridge too far or longest day or saving private ryan you're going to watch that film if you know anything about the history of that actual event you're going to be disappointed and that's it because they're not going to be able to get it and you're not going to be able to get that dissonance between reality and what film is doing how they're trying to service the narrative rather than portray historically accurate events because historically accurate events unfortunately not very entertaining no, and that's no. what's lost in this shuffle of historical accuracy is that we are trying to entertain people. This is a film. This is not a documentary. With um, with films based on historical events, the the idea of getting it right is a noble one. But most people are boring. Most people just sit around for weeks and weeks, months and months in between exciting events in their lives. So the biggest thing I think that historical dramas uh, and biopics do is they compress time, which is one of the things that I immediately just um, give them. Because instead of this happening one day and this happening three weeks later, it happens like the next day. Understood. But that's, that's the thing about historical films. The transition between event A and event B How you get from event A to event B is what makes the film great or garbage. So if you do the the jump cut from one battle to the next, Mm -hmm. you lose something. 
because then it just becomes like one of these Battle of Helms deep CGI mashups where it's just nonstop motion on the screen. What you need is character development, character building. And, you know, you're right. Most people just sit around reading a book. You know, you don't want to watch a three-hour movie where a guy spends an hour and a half sitting reading a book. But if you include elements of that in the film, you get to understand the character better. Yeah, and when you spending, see uh, three hours when you see the warrior not yeah when you see the warrior not on the battlefield, it makes the warrior more relatable. It makes that person more like yourself or my, myself in that you can relate to that person as opposed to them being like Braveheart. <clears throat> Sorry. Me too. High five. Um, <laughs> also, if anyone wants to come on and talk about Braveheart, I don't like it. But if you like it, I will talk about it with you because I'm that kind of person. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going to open that door. But regardless. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my bit on history. I'm, I'm big into the history of T.E. Lawrence. And I can distinguish between the two. But I can also see why David Lean wanted to service a narrative, an entertaining narrative. And in many ways, he delved into a character a little more deeply than anyone had. And 60 years later, we're fighting over nuance, but a lot of what he did wasn't so crazy. Um, when did you study uh, the actual Lawrence? Oh, based on the film, really. After, after seeing the, the film and falling in love with the film, I wanted to know more about the character. Now that right there kind of tells you something, right? If yeah. you watch a, a, a movie and suddenly you want to know more, it tells you that the movie affected you, right? I Better or worse. I think that a film that makes you want to study history is a great, um, is a great effect of a movie, regardless of how accurate or not it is. And, okay, speed round, okay? Favorite character? Favorite character, Faisal. Faisal, why? Because the, the nuance of the character, he's, he never loses his temper, he never gets excited, but he's always manipulating everyone. And just the, the way he talks to people, like when he talks to Allenby and the French delegate, just so calm, but so cool, and so in control. You know, I, I, I give Alec Guinness a lot of credit because in, in the Bridge on the River Kwai, just phenomenal role. But in this one, it was just, he didn't have that much to work with, but he just kicked it so hard. Um, with, oh, when we were talking about uh, building tension and what Alfred Hitchcock said about showing the bomb, I wanted to bring up, but I couldn't remember the name, uh, Inglorious Bastards. The, okay. um, the opening, I, I don't know if it's the opening shot, but towards the beginning, you got the Jewish family that's hiding, and then the... Um, and then the, the main farmhouse. Yeah, in the farmhouse. And then the main bad guy comes okay. in. Everybody knows that they're there. And it's like a twenty-minute scene, and it's just builds and builds and builds. And that's that's one of my favorite um, scenes ever. This one, I don't, I can't name a specific scene that builds uh, tension like that. Maybe you can, but the entire thing just flows so well that I just, I, I can't, I've only seen it once. I saw it for this, so I can't remember individual scenes um, to point out. But of tension? Uh, not of tension, just I can't remember any specific examples, but I can just, but I feel the, the flow of the movie and I can remember it as a whole thing. But what's your favorite um, scene in the movie that revolves around tension? Uh, Omar Sharif's introduction when he comes out of the, the mirage. Oh, yeah. Because it, it's relatively slow, his, his, his coming. So it does kind of, it, it piques your interest. You want to know what's going on. Like, what, it, it takes a while for him to get there. But when he does, he straight up murders a dude. Yeah, he's a right? great villain. Lawrence is standing there unarmed. He's unarmed. And there's this guy who's just, in charge. This is my well. This is my water. What are you doing here? You know, and 
It's so, so well done. And even down to Lawrence just standing up to him for no apparent reason. He's, it's basically a suicidal front when he's like the, you know, I drink from your well too. That's, yeah. it's, it's, that's it's so scene. beautiful. I love that scene. It, but um, tension, tension in this movie isn't a big thing. It's not that kind of movie, right? There are some tense moments, you know, when, the, when he gets captured by the Ottomans, there's some tense moments there. What goes on there, we don't really know, but yeah. Uh, crossing the, the Nefru Desert, that's pretty tense when it's like, yeah, if we don't get across by sunup, we're toast. That story. And then he rides back to, to save his friend. That, that's uh, tension because of, because of the story, but yeah. what I was talking about before was that you don't feel like. Uh, I I didn't feel at any point that Lawrence right, that Lawrence from uh, wasn't going to get out of it that he was um, and I guess that was a choice because we saw how he died but at the beginning that's what I I started with was they said the most important part of that film was yeah they kill him at the start so it it completely gets rid of that tension of of his mortality so that you can focus on the character. You're not worried whether he's going to live or die. What you're worried about is his his psychology. I who is this man and what is he doing and where is he going? That's that's the thing about this movie. It's not a a a, a peril movie. We're not. He's not a character in peril. That's We're not afraid right. of him losing his life. We're afraid of him losing his mind. Yeah, like the and that's what I'm saying about this movie is that it's. It's a war movie where you're not worried about the war. You're worried about the war within his own mind. It's a movie As he becomes more self-confident, more selfish. Yeah. It's a war movie that's not about the war, but it's about this one person and his effects on the people around him and how he fights his battles. He's still um, a soldier in the war, but it, it, it doesn't focus on the big picture. It just focuses on this uh group but that's the beautiful dichotomy of this film i i is you have this internal this tight internal struggle but it's these epic epic uh shots these open open spaces 2.66 thing is the beautiful thing about this film is that the whole film is an internal battle for lawrence it's all in him. The battle is internal. But on the other side of things, this movie is in this 266 ratio, these beautiful, huge landscape sceneries. So it's like the biggest war movie ever, but at the same time, it's one of the smallest war movies ever. It, um... What's going on inside his head, but it's portrayed in this big cinematic experience. It's strange that way, but that's, that's what makes this great. The big picture focusing, the way focusing on a single character is done um, quite a bit, but it's never this effective because usually for the, um, for the big picture focusing on a small character, the big picture is usually sacrificed. Um, but with this, their stories, the story of him and the story of the war um, are tangled up. So every time we hear about Lawrence's accomplishments, and we see what he does, we, we know that there's an effect that's bigger outside of our bubble. Yeah. And again, it's so, so with them killing him at the start of the film, the sacrifice for Lawrence isn't his life. We know he's not going to sacrifice his life. The sacrifice for him is his sense of identity and his sanity. How long can he hold on to these things? I, this movie's great. And I, I love it. I need to watch it again um, to pick up more on these themes. I, I've probably seen it 50 times. 50 times, that's a solid number. As I say, if you do rewatch it, focus on that business card shot. Okay. The editing on that business card shot is phenomenal. But no, it's 50 times, but I've, I've seen it in theaters probably seven or eight times. What theaters? I, I'll see um, you now shows old movies that often um 
since since I've I've been in England, I've only found one theater that does it. They did a screening last year out in Christchurch, so I went and saw that. But the thing is, is a lot of these theaters, especially the second-run theaters, if you find second-run theaters, they'll do movie nights or they do like movie club nights. And I, you know, if anyone's listening to this, hello everyone, uh, I would highly recommend searching these things out, not necessarily in your town, maybe the next town over or whatever, but search out these movie club nights or, or second-run cinemas because you could plop down your, your, your X amount of dollars and go see Captain Marvel for the third time or maybe you could go do a midnight screening of Citizen Kane and have your mind absolutely blown. So I, I always I always search these out, and not just Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I I recently went up to London to do uh, uh to see a screening of The Great Escape for the anniversary. Phenomenal, loved it. But a lot of these these older CinemaScope movies, you cannot watch those on a cell phone. I'm sorry, it just does not work. Lawrence of Arabia was filmed to be seen on a screen. I have a, uh, my computer screen that I use to watch movies. Uh, it's not the same. It's never the same. It's good enough. No. But if you're watching, just a sidebar to anyone listening, if you're watching movies on your phone, that's treason. That's <laughs> treason. Crimes against humanity. Crimes against cinema. That's even worse. I like more movies. <laughs> I, ah, oh, God, it's been fun. I'm going to see it again. I, usually I'm just like, I'll watch this new movie. No, I'm seeing this movie uh, for a second time to pick up on everything we've discussed. Um, it's been fun. I love it. How long have we been going? We've been going quite a bit. Um, you said that you studied film. You said that you studied film. Yeah. Uh, where did you study? Sorry, where? Yeah, where? I studied under the knee of the master. Um, I will, I actually wanted to say this before uh, before we we got through, but um, when I was a kid, my when I was a kid, my grandfather he was big into film. My grandfather loved film, so as a kid growing up with him, he used to we used to watch movies together, and uh, there was a local. Uh, uh, public broadcasting company that did uh, a show called Saturday Night at the Movies. Nice. So they used to play they used to play a movie every Saturday night, a classic movie, you know, Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, something like that. And they'd play it late at night, so he would set his VCR, but he never knew how long to set it for. So he went out and he bought this book by Leonard Malton that had every movie, every playtime. And I just read that book. Like, like, like a novel, I read that book. And... I wanted to, to, to mention my grandfather because he's the one who introduced me to David Lee. You know, I saw uh, Bridge on the River Kwai first, then Dr. Zhivago, and then Lawrence. Having and someone introduce you to film not only enhances your um, knowledge of film and how, what it does, but your connection with that person makes the connection with the film even greater. Well, and, and I've been lucky because I grew up in, in the 80s when, you know, there was a lot of, of pap, let's be honest. You know, you could watch 16 Candles, which is extremely creepy nowadays. I don't, I don't, so I know people I, have the, their, their uh, emotions in that film because they saw it at a younger age. But if you watch that film now, it's, it's super creepy. But I grew up with those films, but it was so lucky for me to have my grandfather going, that's great, but let's watch Casablanca. And you watch that and go, holy crap, you know? So I've been lucky in the sense that I've been able to appreciate modern film as well as classic film. And it makes understanding film a little easier because you can watch a film like Citizen Kane and go, yeah, if you look at that as a modern film, it's not very entertaining. It's not that great. But then when you look at it within its time, you go, wow, that was really, really, you know, they weren't doing stuff like that until Deer Hunter in the 70s. So it was like 30, 40 years ahead of its time. I find. I um, just wanted to thank Ray Miller. Ray Miller. Sorry, I just want to throw his yeah. name out there. My grandfather, Ray Miller, because he introduced me to film. 
and he passed away in 1996. And if it weren't for him, I would be buying tickets to Transformers: The Last Night Part Two. Oh God! The Revenge we, of the Last Night. And, we can't let that happen. And watching, watching Armageddon for the 18th time because it's the saddest movie ever. But <laughs> you know, it's the the appreciation of of everything that comes with what he gave to me and. I'll, I'll always I'll always think of him whenever I watch this film because this was kind of a, a film that me and him shared and it was that that's what comes down to it right I found Spartacus on my own and I love Spartacus almost on par with Lawrence but I have an emotional element when it comes to this film so that sticks with me. Oh, I love that. I um I have people in my life that introduced me to film and got me to watch uh, things other than uh, kids' movies when I was growing up. Um, when I was growing up, I, I, I remember my, the first movie um, that I saw that was out of my age bracket. I forget what it was, but I was basically like, hey, uh, uncle, do you want to watch, uh, what the fuck was it? Um, Elmo and Grouchland, which is a Sesame Street movie. And he's like, no, we're going to watch uh, it was Star Trek. Uh, to the Wrath of Khan. And I was like, this is boring. And he's like, oh, Wrath of and, and now I have a picture of Wrath of Khan on my, on my wall. I love that movie. But Oh, it's one of the best sequels ever made. It's so good, especially considering how shit the first movie was. I love that movie so much. Uh, Dad introduced me to Rocky, and I was like, this is dull. Get, uh, call me one of those boxing. So things change. But you changed too. I was too young to understand drama as a um, as a form of tension. Uh, but when I reached, uh, when I became mature enough to under, when I became mature enough to understand drama, that made the um, it, that opened up a whole new level of cinema for me. And it's because of um, people in my family and my friends that introduced me to things that I never would have had. It's great to have people like that in your life. I, I agree with you. People do change. And, you know, your, your, your tastes in films change. I mean, when I was a young kid, I loved Godzilla films, you know. I loved uh, Alien and Jaws and Die Hard and movies like that. But I still love Jaws. I still love Die Hard. Jaws is a great tension film. You want to see tension. Woof. My tastes in movies have changed over time. I, I tend to lean more towards documentaries now. But there are still those anchor films, like like the Stanley Kubrick films or the early Spielberg films or even the later Spielberg films, really, that I just hold on to because they're so well-made. And sometimes, you know, when it's like, oh, I could go see... Uh, I don't want to throw any movies under the bus. I could go see movie x at the theater and i'm like well maybe i'll just watch jurassic park because it's a nice warm place for me to go and hide i mean you know i'm not gonna i'm very comfortable i'm not gonna be disappointed watching jurassic park right and i never am and and there's there's certain movies like that for everyone where it's just it's that warm safe place where you know that for the next two hours you're not going to be disappointed you're not going to finish the movie and go, what? That's it? No. You're going to be warm warm and fuzzy and you have good memories tied up with those films. And a lot of the reason why people freak out so much about, about sequels and remakes is because of that. You know, Star yeah. Wars is a great example. People have such warm, fuzzy moments about Star Wars that when Last Jedi came out, they lost their minds. And Star Wars isn't a superb movie. It was a fun kids movie with laser swords and space wizards. But people have put so much emphasis on it that when literally anything comes out about it that's not that movie that they saw 40 years ago, it, they go nuts. Um, yeah, true enough. But I'll, I'll beg to differ. I well, think Star that Wars the, is, if I mean, you watch the first Star Wars, the let pacing me, in that let me film rephrase. is phenomenal. Um, Okay. I'm not, it's okay. I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying that when you look at it from craft, take out the love, take out the story, 
you just look at it from craft, it's really well made. The pacing is really good. The, the, the expansive atmosphere of the film is very good. And that's, that's what I think really got people at the start was because with the exception of 2001, people really hadn't seen that expansive atmosphere like that. And if we're gonna talk pacing, 2001, a beautiful, great film, has the worst pacing of any film ever. I know, and it, and I think it's because it doesn't focus <laughs> on the characters. The only, the only real character uh, is no. Carl, and the rest just, uh, they are, uh, it's all about how humanity gave up their humanity for technology, etc. Anyway, we've been talking about this for ages. Have you read this book? No, I have not. This is, 501 must-see movies. Yeah, 501 must-see movies, uh, fully revisited and updated. Um, I have been going through this book, and I'm up to seven. It's taking a while. One of the reasons I You've got... You've gotten this, seven of the 501? Yeah. One of the reasons I, I, I started this podcast is to um, beef up my movie-watching thing. Um, I love it. Um, find this book and see how fast you can complete it. At this rate, about 100 years. Um, there's probably a good chance that probably 400 to 450 of those I've probably already seen. I, you showed me your IMDb list. That's an impressive list. IMDb? I think you showed it to me. Um, no, no, I never did. Uh, oh, I don't actually have an IMDb list. Uh, because the thing is, is, is with the number of movies I've actually seen, it would probably be it'd probably take me longer to fill out the list than it would be to, to actually see the movies. <laughs> um, I, I, I did a lot of, of mass watching pretty much my whole life. And I've tried to key in on significant films when I was younger. And I think that, you know, you look at, at the, the, I've seen every Hitchcock movie, every single one. I've seen every Stanley Kubrick movie at least five times each maybe with the exception of Lolita. I didn't really like Lolita very much, but that wasn't his fault. Um, but there's, a, there's so many films that have been so influential that you, you just, you have to see them at some point. Even even horrible films like Gone with the Wind, you have to see it at some point. I don't think I have to see Gone with the Wind. I'm sorry, I, have, I know there's fans of Gone with the Wind out there, but oof, You're wrong. Oof, um, you do. Gone and Birth of a Nation. The original Birth of a Nation. Don't need to see Birth because, of a Nation. Not just because of, of what it is as a film. You need to see it within its context in film. Um, you need when to see Birth see of a Nation. Why, why this movie is the biggest movie ever made. You don't need to see Birth of a Nation because it invented a lot of editing. Because it didn't. It popularized it. Uh, you need to see it to see how normal that sort of racism was. It was so normal that they made a movie about it. One more thing before we go. No, true, true. Yeah. One more thing before we go. Uh, last Christmas, uh, my, I, uh, my friends realized, okay, he's really into movies, but like weird uh, black and white and foreign movies. What should we get him? So they got me, for Christmas, this box set. They got me... Uh, the oh, is that the shorts? The, yeah, the Essential Charlie Chaplin Collection. Uh, features 50 of Chaplin's legendary films and an exclusive uh, bio, uh, bio documentary. So I'm excited nice. to actually sit down and see all those. They're going to be fun. This has been fun. Yeah, no, there's the, you know, Gold Rush is a phenomenally well-made film. Uh, Great Dictator, I think, was the first one he didn't sound. Really, really well done. I saw Great Dictator... Um, after I heard, I heard that speech on YouTube, because obviously. Oh, really? Okay. There you go. Um, I love YouTube. I love YouTube. But I heard that speech on YouTube. It is much better to, um, hear that speech after knowing the full context, because it isn't their parody of Within Hitler the context, it. yeah. Yeah. It isn't their parody of Hitler saying it, which is what I assumed, because, I mean, he's dressed like their parody of Hitler. Um, it's a Jewish person that is taking back control and the voice of um, someone who's full of hatred. And knowing that it's the Jewish person who's taking back that control makes that speech 10 times better. I love it so much. 
we have to go. Yeah. We have to go. It's been like an hour and a half or something. Sorry, bud. I could yak about film all day. I'm sorry. Oh, no. It's been great. And I could have stopped this any time, but I love talking to you. Um, right up. Okay. 30 seconds. Where can the good people find you? You got a podcast? Where can you? they find me? Yeah. You no, got I got podcast. no podcast, my friend. Ah, ah that's a shame. I have a, 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 ch- a channel on uh, YouTube where I have picture uh, videos of my dog and my wife. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to watch that. Uh, <laughs> if you want to find me, chances are I'll be in a movie theater. <laughs> Just <laughs> um, find your nearest um, as I say, Kaplan screening. I'm gonna turn, yeah, I'm going to turn this off of me and onto the, the audience and say, uh, go out and find these second-run theaters. Find these uh, these film clubs join one and go see some classic film and and not just see it but learn to appreciate classic film for what it is and for what it did to the 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 future of film the the fact that they focus more on narrative than they did on spectacle and that's the thing that i think is we're starting to lose in in modern film is we're losing the narrative and focusing on the spectacle especially disney buying up uh that's that's because studio no, it's because of Netflix. It's because people are now judging films on whether they should see it on a big screen or see it at, on, on, at home. And if it's a, a low-budget narrative film, they're just going to wait until it's on Netflix. If it's a big, spectacle, splashy film, they want to see it on a big screen. But some of those narrative films, The Maltese Falcon, The Third Man, for the love of God, if you see The Third Man on a big screen, it will absolutely rock your world you will not understand how a movie that awesome was made 90 years ago I love this. so please go and find one of these film clubs go find a second run theater and be seen with the uh death of physical media you can't find the secondhand market is dead and we're going to rely heavily on streaming services for this so if you can find old movies and watch them um okay so you can follow me uh subscribe to this podcast the aussie nerds podcast uh follow me on twitter at aussie nerds pod uh follow me on facebook aussie nerds links will be in the description it's been a great time i'm glad to have you on